1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. If you've arrived there, will you stand as we read God's Word together? I invite you, even those of you who may be watching at home, to stand out of reverence for God's Word. If you are able, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, and we'll be reading through verse 21. Listen to the conclusion of, of John's letter. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are, we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in His Son, Christ Jesus. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Heavenly Father, as we consider the conclusion of this book, as we consider Your Word, we ask You to speak clearly through Your Spirit. God, I pray that You will guard me, that You will give me spiritual and physical strength as I preach your word, that this would be your word and not mine. Give us grace for your people are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I've tagged this this final sermon here in the book of 1 John in our series, The True Christian Life. Very practical title for a sermon, The Conclusion. The Conclusion. You know, throughout the existence of our country, uh, there have been individuals who hold what some would consider to be the most powerful office in the world, that is, the office of the President of the United States of America. Forty-six individuals have held that role. And throughout their time in office, these, these individuals fought for, argued about, and promoted what they thought, whether right or wrong, but what they thought would be in the best interest of the American people. And yet, they only have but a few years to lead. Every person who has ever held that office has left that office. Some left sooner than we would have liked, and others stayed longer than we would have wished. And I'll let you decide which is which. But many of these presidents, as they were leaving office, they give what has now become a standard practice for presidents. It wasn't always a standard practice, but it is now a standard practice. They give a farewell address. The first and the probably the most famous farewell address was given by our first president, George Washington. As the Hamilton musical so eloquently tells us, he was teaching us how to say goodbye. And in this address, drafted by the president and Alexander Hamilton, George Washington used this address, he used his farewell address to highlight what he believed to be of most importance as his time was coming to a close as the president of the United States. And in essence, what he did is he summarized what he had fought for his entire presidency, he summarized it into this farewell address. And in his farewell address, George Washington reminded us of three things. He reminded us of three things that he thought was of grave importance. First thing he reminded the American people of was the unity, the the importance of the unity as a nation. 
that we would be a united nation. The second thing that he spoke of was the danger of loyalty to a political party above loyalty to the United States as a whole. And the third thing that he spoke of in his farewell address was the danger of foreign influence in the politics of a nation. It's almost as if George Washington was somewhat prophetic. But this address, these warnings, they echoed what he had fought for his entire presidency. Washington, he understood the weight of his farewell address. He wanted to encapsulate that everything that needed to be said, it mattered so much to him, this farewell address. It actually mattered so much to George Washington, a little history for you, that he originally had James Madison write the speech for him. And James Madison gave him the speech, and Washington read it, and Washington thought it was garbage. So he threw it out, grabbed Alexander Hamilton, and said, you write it for me. You're better at this anyway. And the two of them together wrote this farewell address, one that Washington was pleased with. And the reason that it mattered so much was that Washington knew, he knew that he might not ever again have the chance to communicate to the American people from the platform he had as the president of the United States. He knew that the heart of a nation was at stake. He knew that if this American experiment was going to survive, these final words, these final warnings, they mattered. They needed to be said. I would contend this morning that with even more significance, with more at stake, not the heart of a nation, but the soul of real people, John writes in these final four verses his farewell address. And in the verses that we just read, John concludes his letter and he sums up and he reiterates everything that he has been talking about throughout the entirety of the book of 1 John. We've spent about three months looking at this letter of five chapters. We have entitled the entire series. We've defined the totality of the book with this thought, the true Christian life. You see, in the midst of a great schism, you may remember as people, when John is writing, people are believing lies, people are abandoning the truth delivered to them about Jesus, and the Christians are hurting. They're watching people walk away, and they are hurting. And John is writing to encourage these hurting Christians to remain faithful and to live the true Christian life. If you remember... When we started this series, we talked about how timely this series is. We too are living in a day when we see proclaiming Christians going all sorts of directions. We see errors in the church. We see both poor orthodoxy and poor orthopraxy, meaning we see bad teaching and bad living. And the temptation. As we look at the church in our day and age, the temptation is to think that our primary response should be to correct every error that we see. But what John reminds us is that before we ever think of correcting error, before we ever think of addressing the the faults in the church, there is something that is even more weighty. There is something that matters more in the eyes of God. It's not that we know everyone else's error and be able to tell them why why they're wrong. Again, that's important, but that's not the first thing. That's not the prominent thing of importance. And what John is trying to communicate is that what matters more is not that we could correct every error. What matters more is that we as individuals in a collective body of believers that we would be found living the true Christian life. And as John again brings our discussion to a close, he summarizes in these last four verses the entirety of the letter. He summarizes 
the true Christian life with four defining characteristics, four final expectations, four exhortations, if you will. These four things must be found in our lives if we are going to be found living the true Christian life. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you these four things, these four exhortations for what it takes at the end of the day, what it takes for us to live the true Christian life. Here is the first. First exhortation. Be holy. Be holy. Look again at verse 18. John says, we know. We know. And I want you, as we read these verses throughout the sermon, pay attention to how many times John says, we know the truth that we know to be true. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. In verse 18, we are reminded of something. We are reminded of what one commentator calls the permanent privileges and obligations of being a child of God. The permanent privileges and obligations of being a child of God. Because remember, as John wrote in 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Remember that when God saved us, He not only delivers us from the wrath of God, but something amazing happens. We are actually adopted into God's family. And by being in the family, there are both expectations and privileges of being a child of God. And this honestly shouldn't shock us that much. Every earthly family has expectations of their members. Some may be a little bit more defined than others, but everybody has expectations of their family members. There are things that you as parents expect from your children that you may not expect from other children. There are things that you may expect from your spouse that you better not expect from someone else's spouse. There are things that you expect from your parents that you would not expect from other parents. Every earthly family has expectations of its members. How much more should it be for the divine, the divine family? And one of the expectations, a major expectation, a defining expectation of being a child of of the, the God Most High is that we would be holy. Now, in order to understand this expectation, we have to we have to understand the source. Because remember, God is defined as holy. Isaiah 57 tells us that God's name is holy. And so what does God's holiness entail? Well, When we say God is holy, we're actually speaking about a multitude of realities. God's holiness reminds us of his transcendence, that he is far above us. God's holiness reminds us of the perfection that is God in all that he does. His holiness reminds us of his supreme majesty and rule and the fact that he is the sovereign king of all eternity. But the aspect of of God's holiness that John wants us to to focus on is the fact that his holiness also speaks to his moral perfection, meaning there is no sin in God. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. The holiness that John is calling us to, the holiness that is the expectation because of our familial status is one where we no longer delight in nor participate in sin. This is why John writes in verse 
18 at the very beginning there, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. And again, this has been a theme throughout his letter. Do you remember how many times we've talked about this? 1 John 1 verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. 1 John 3 verses 4 through 6, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he has revealed, he was revealed so that He might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And again, we need to add the caveat that we've added throughout the course of this series that what John is not saying is that if you sin, you're not a child of God. Because people have read this uh, to to mean that, that if you ever sin, if you sin one time, it proves that you are not a Christian. That's not the case. That's not what John is arguing. Because remember, John is not talking about a moment. He's talking about a pattern of your life. I like how John Stott explains it. Explain what John means here when Stott writes about this verse. It expresses the truth, not not that he can never slip into acts of sin, but that he does not persist in it habitually or live in sin. He says, the new birth results in new behavior. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. Hear that. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. And he says, they may occasionally meet, but they cannot live together in harmony. Hear me, you and I will battle sin until the day we die. There is no perfection in this life. But the mark of a true believer, the mark of the true Christian life is one where we are striving for holiness and refusing to allow sin to reign and rule in one's life. Be holy. This is a permanent obligation of being a child of God. But remember, I mentioned that being a child of God not only means there are permanent obligations, but there are also permanent privileges. Look at what John says in the last half of verse 18. But the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. You see, this is the privilege. The privilege is that if we are God's children, even though we may struggle with sin, God will keep us. Y'all too holy for me because that's good news. I mean, that makes me get excited that even though we struggle with sin, God will keep us. Because I'd be willing to bet that some of you struggle with sin this morning before you walked in here. And the fact that you remain a Christian, the fact that you can sing the songs that we just sang and declare how amazing our God is, is because even though you sin, God will keep you. But now, the way this is worded is a little tricky. And so let me understand how I got to the privilege that God will keep you based off of what John says in in, in the latter part of verse 18. Because it almost reads as if it says... The one who is born of God keeps him as if if we are born of God, we keep hold of God. But that's not what John is saying here. You see, because when you when you start to break down the text, the Greek helps us understand what's going on here. And I'm not going to explain the Greek to you. If you really want to know, I'll explain it to you later. But it helps us understand because when, when John writes the first time, the one who is born of God, he, he's talking about the Christian. He's talking about those who have placed their faith in Jesus who have been adopted. But the second time there at the end of verse 18 that he mentions the one born of God, he's actually talking about Jesus. And the Greek helps us understand how we get there. So as as much as I'm not a fan of it, the New Living Translation actually helps us understand this verse very clearly. 
The New Living Translation translates translates it like this. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, but God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. This shouldn't be a hard thing for us to grasp. John's already talked about this truth in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Why? Not because we hold close to God, not because we hold tight of him, but because his seed, God's seed, who is God's seed? It's Jesus, remains in him. And so he, that's us, we're not able to sin because he has been born of God. The privilege of being a child of God is that our status is secure because Jesus holds on to us. Because Jesus holds on to us. And brothers and sisters, listen to me, marvel at that truth. Again, that though the expectation for holiness is a reality because we are God's children, the protection of God the Father is there also. He will never let us go. Pastor Lance said, no, I was going to quote Jude 24, but he read it earlier, and I'm going to read it again. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory without blemish and with great joy. Listen, that's God, that ain't you. God is able to protect you. God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to make you stand in His presence with glory. And He will present you without spot and blemish and with a heart that is overflowing with joy. Now, I know I said a lot about this first point for be holy. It's actually my longest point, so we made it through this. The rest will be smooth sailing. But before we move on, let me try to summarize for you this idea that the true Christian life is marked by holiness. I'm going to try to say it in a way that's applicable to you. God help me here, okay? Here it is. Here's what I got. If the true Christian life is to be marked by holiness, what God is telling you is this. Stop playing with your sin. Stop playing with your sin. Stop acting like you are strong enough to manage your sin. Stop acting like your sin is no big deal and like holiness is optional. Listen to me. Please hear me. We have a real enemy. And I don't want you for a moment to underestimate him. He is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it may be you. And I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how strong you think you are. You, in your own power, are no match for Satan. Don't get it twisted. Yes, John has said we have the victory. John has said we conquer. But it's not because we are strong. It's because Jesus is. Satan is stronger than you. He rebelled against God and took a third of the host of heaven with him. You ain't got nothing on him. But I want you to hear this. What John tells us in verse 18 is that Satan cannot touch you. Satan cannot harm you unless you let him. Even in our text, John says that as we are fighting sin and when we fight sin, knowing and believing that Jesus will keep us, he says at the end of verse 18, the evil one cannot touch you. And I want to let you in on a little secret. Nobody might have told you this before, but I'm going to tell it to you now. In Christ... Satan can never destroy you, but he knows he doesn't have to. He knows all he has to do is put you in a position where you will destroy yourself. You want to know how he does that? He lets you think that it's okay to play with sin. 
Don't think that destruction can't happen. We'll come to that later in the sermon. But what we do know is that Satan cannot destroy you, but he can allow you, he can tempt you, he can place you in positions where you will destroy yourself. Satan wants you to think that you are the master. Satan wants you to think that you can keep your sin on a leash and manage it as if it won't kill you. And we forget that when it comes to sin, we may hold the leash, but Satan has the key to the lock around its neck. And he will let it loose when he sees fit. Sin is not something to take lightly. It is not something that we should trifle with. Jesus understood this. And maybe we need to adopt a little bit more of this attitude when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28 and 29, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your body parts than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Let me bring it into the the, the 21st century here, right? If your iPhone is causing you to sin, quit playing with it and throw it out. If your TV is causing you to sin, quit playing with it and throw it out. Well, what am I going to watch? I don't know, but you'll be holy. Quit playing with your sin and expectation and obligation of being a child of God is that we would be holy. Don't play with it, family. But here's the amazing thing. As we fight for holiness, we will simultaneously find ourselves pursuing the the second exhortation of the true Christian life. See, not only are we called to be distinct, not only does John remind us of that, but the second thing is he said, or to be holy, the second thing he says is, I gave it away, did you hear that? Is to be distinct. Be distinct. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And once again, John is reminding us of what he has already said in greater detail in the letter. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John said, Do not love the world or the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possession, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And then he says this, And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of the Father remains forever. Brothers and sisters, We are not to look like this world. Jesus isn't playing when he says that. John's not playing when he says that. God is not playing when he says that. We are not to look like this world. We are not to think in worldly categories. We are not to base our hope on systems and governments of this world. We are not to find our greatest delight and hope in the things of this world. We are called to be. No, no, no. We are privileged to be distinct from this world. And let me tell you why it's a privilege, because when we are distinct from this world, we are declaring two very important things. First, we are declaring that we are not children of this world. But the second thing that we are declaring is that we are a part of a better family. In essence, what John is calling us to do is to actually act like we are God's children when we engage with those who are not his children to act like we are a part of his family. And again, maybe you can relate to this. I'll go back to the earthly family illustration. When I was a child, some of you might be right right here with me. I might be telling your story, okay, your testimony. I distinctly remember times when I was going to places that would have a whole bunch of other kids present. Maybe it was church, maybe it was the park, 
Maybe it was Discovery Zone. Some of y'all might not know about Discovery Zone. That was hot back then, okay? There would be other children present. And there were times when my parents knew, based on who was going to be there, that there would be a temptation for us, for me and my brothers, how should we say it? To act a fool. To act like we had no sense at all and run around like we were crazy like everybody else. And my parents would remind us that it did not matter what the other kids did. It did not matter what the other kids jumped on, who they tackled, who they throw fists at. It didn't matter how the other kids acted. They wanted me to remember that they set the rules. That I wasn't a part of their family, those kids over there. I was a part of my parents' family. And as we mentioned before, when you place your faith in Jesus, your family changed. Your identity changed. You don't belong to this world anymore. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellency and the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Again, we are not of this world. And what that means is that, again, we don't act like this world. We don't talk like this world. We don't walk like this world. We don't fight like this world. We don't look for hope in the things that this world looks for hope for. We don't find peace in the things of this world. We do not love this world because we belong to another world. We belong to a better world. And while we are here, we are meant to represent that world and that kingdom. Listen to me, please, if everything you do looks like the world, if everything you say sounds like the world, if you respond to sin like the world responds to sin, if the world is cool with you, then perhaps you are not of that other world. Perhaps you are of this world. What I'm trying to say is this, brothers and sisters, if your sanctified swagger doesn't ruffle some feathers every now and again, perhaps you're not walking like you're your father's child. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen kiddos mimic their parents' walk, how they stand, how they interact with people. Maybe you're not looking like your father. The Christian life is a distinct life. You cannot live it and blend in at the same time. I'm trying to free you in your understanding that it's okay to look silly in this world. But hear me on this, the key thing that should distinguish us from the world is not our theology. It's not our stance on cultural issues. It's not merely that we spend Sunday morning sitting in here doing something that everybody else doesn't do. The thing that should distinguish us from the world is not that we are against the world. What distinguishes us, what distinguishes us from the world is supposed to be our love for one another. 1 John 3, 13 and 14. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. We must be distinct. We must be distinct. 
So to live the Christian life, Paul, or John has exhorted us that we must be holy. We must be distinct. But here's the third exhortation. Here's the third expectation of the true Christian life. Be grounded. Be grounded. Look again at verse 20. John says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one that is in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And in this verse, in verse 20, John talks again about what we know. What we believe, he says, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. He is talking about the truth that grounds us as Christians. But not just the truth that grounds us, but the one that is Jesus who we are grounded in. Again, John's already talked about this in his letter. 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. You have, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. And I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you. And you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as He taught you, remain in Him. You see, what John's getting at, what he has been getting at throughout his letter, What I want you to hear this morning is that living the true Christian life is not easy. It's not easy. You've heard me say it multiple times. If anybody told you that being a Christian would be easy, they lied to you. It is hard. And one of the things that makes it particularly difficult is that the world is constantly screaming truth claims in your ears. The world is telling you what you should believe. And even more, the world is telling you how you should live. And what John is reminding us of in verse 20 is the fact that we know truth. We know the one who is truth. And if we are ever going to, be stand, to stand, we have to be grounded in something. And in verse 20, there are two things that John calls us to be grounded in. Two things he mentions, redemption and revelation. So let me start with redemption. You might be saying, well, well, where do you see that? Well, it's in the second half there, verse 20, when John writes, we are in the true one that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So what John is saying is stand firm in who you are because of what Christ has done. Ground yourself in the truth of the gospel. Ground yourself in the reality that you rebelled against God, that every one of us in our sin deserved the wrath and anger of God for all eternity. But God loved us so much, as John said, this is love. That God sent Jesus into this world, that he died on a cross to take the penalty and the punishment for our sin. He was buried, raised from the dead. And anyone who comes through faith and repentance can find adoption into his family. He is reminding us that everything we are, everything we hope for, every aspect of our identity, even as Lance read in the call to worship in Ephesians 1, all of that is true of us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Our identity is first and foremost found in Jesus. Christian, your identity first and foremost has to be in Jesus. 
So he says, be grounded in the redemption. Be grounded in what Christ has done. Stand on the gospel. But he says, it's not just redemption. Ground yourself in revelation. Not the book of revelation, but in God's revelation. We see that in the first part there of verse 20. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know the true one. In Christ, through Christ, we have understanding. We can understand who God is and what it is that he has revealed to us about himself. You might think, well, how is that the case? Well, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 through 13. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God so that we may listen to this so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in the words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. And I like this. He says, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. Because you are in Christ, the spirit of God dwells in you and part of his job. It's not all of his job, but part of his job is to explain the things of God to you, specifically the things revealed about God in his word. Now, it seems to me that if God gave us his spirit and part of the spirit's role is to help us understand scripture, then perhaps, bear with me here, I know it's a stretch, but perhaps we should take this book seriously. Perhaps there is some truth in here. Perhaps there is some direction in here. Perhaps the voice of God is actually heard as we read the words written on this pages and the Spirit of God will illuminate our hearts that we might understand it. You see, John wants to communicate that if we are to live the true Christian life, we have to be grounded in both redemption and revelation. We have to be grounded in and stand on the gospel and God's word. And the word grounded is very significant. I chose it for a purpose. Because I'm not just saying that we should know the gospel. I'm not just saying that we should read the Bible. I am saying that we should base our life, our identity, and our walk based off of those two things. Our lives are to be dictated by our salvation and the word of God. So let me pose a question to you. It was the question that, that I asked myself and I wanted to answer with you. The, it's two questions, actually. The questions are, how do we know if we're grounded in the gospel and God's word? Another way you could say it is, how do we know if the gospel and the word of God is the foundation of our lives and our hope as we live in this world? There's a simple answer to that question. Whether or not you are basing your hope, your joy, your life, your identity on the gospel and the word of God. Simple answer. Examine your life. I'm going to ask the question. Just examine. You don't have to answer. Because y'all ain't talking to me anyway. What do you talk about most? What do you talk about most? I'm not just talking about when you're in church. I'm just not talking about when you're with believers. What do you talk about most? What do you write about most on Facebook and Twitter? What do you text about most? What do you talk about most on your phone calls with your family? Because what I'm getting at is that when something stirs us, when something moves us, when something excites us, we talk about it. You know how I know that's true? Because in my time in ministry here, some of y'all have gotten new cars. You couldn't wait to tell everybody. Some of you have gotten the amazing news that you were pregnant. You're having a first child, second child, third child, a 45th child. Glad you guys are here. 
We talk about it. We talk about the things that matter to us. Track with me. I know it's basic, but it's true. We talk about the things that matter to us. And the question that I have is if you're claiming to be grounded in the gospel and in the word of God, how much do you talk about the gospel and the word of God? How much is your your speech seasoned with the truth that Jesus loves sinners and that Jesus saves and that Jesus redeems? How much of your speech is seasoned with the word of God and the power of God and the providence of God? The plan of God, the purposes of God, the blessings of God and the privileges of God. What do you talk about? Don't tell me you're grounded in Scripture. I'm not trying to come at you. I'm just trying to be honest. Don't tell me you're grounded in Scripture if you never tell anybody about Jesus. You are lying to yourself. Satan's got you by the throat. Don't tell me you're grounded in the Word of God if you never read the Word of God and then talk about the Word of God. I'm so tired of Christians telling me what everybody else thinks about the world's problems. I'm so tired of Christians telling me how this person thinks I should raise my kid or that person thinks I should raise my kid. I'm so tired of how this organization or this person thinks I should fight for justice in this world. I don't care. What does God say? The true Christian life will always be grounded in the thing that makes us a Christian and the thing that tells us how we are to live as Christians. I'm going to tell you this, and I want you to hear it in love. Your Christian life is not grounded in what your favorite theologian thinks about Jesus in the Bible. Your Christian life cannot be grounded in what other people think about politics and justice how we live. The Christian life has to be grounded in the gospel and the word of God. So the true Christian life is one where we are called to be holy, to be distinct, and to be grounded. But here is the final exhortation, the final expectation, if you will, that John gives. Here it is. Be careful. Be careful. Be holy, be distinct, be grounded, be careful. This is interesting to me. John doesn't give a normal ending, a normal benediction as he's writing this letter. The last thing he wants to leave them with, the last words that he communicates is a call for Christians to be careful. Look at verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. I don't know about you, but if I'm writing a book trying to encourage Christians, that's not what I'm ending on. It's not. But that's where John ends this. Little children, guard yourself from idols. And the reason John ends like this is because John knows something that we sometimes forget, though I think we know it. We will always worship something. We will always worship something. And what John is saying is make sure Make sure you are worshiping the right thing. Make sure you're worshiping the right thing. Make sure you are worshiping the God who loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross to save you. Make sure that is the God that you are worshiping. And listen to me, even though you didn't say it, I know it's easy to say amen to that when we're sitting here and the sole purpose of why we are in this place is to praise the name of our great God. But when you go out there, Be careful. Our world world has a lot of idols in it. 
Now, we typically think of idols when someone says that. The first thing that pops into to, to our minds is the golden calves or a, a physical object crafted by human hands. And as wretched as those things are, they are not the only idols in this world. Money can be an idol. A platform can be an idol. Your family can be an idol. Your comfort can be an idol. Your political party can be an idol. Justice can be an idol. Sex can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. The church can be an idol. And the most dangerous thing that we can do is to think that we are too good to fall. Let me say that again. The most dangerous thing we can do is think that we are too good to fall. Paul warns against this very thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, so whoever thinks he stands, be careful not to fall. Whoever thinks he stands, be careful not to fall. We, brothers and sisters, we cannot get comfortable in this world. We cannot forget again, as we've already mentioned, that Satan wants to see us fall. And typically, brothers and sisters, that will happen not because he outplayed us. Because again, we know he can't touch us as we fight for holiness. No, no, no. It will typically happen because we let our guard down. Because we were cool with being friends with this world. It breaks my heart, but it seems like you can't turn on your TV or, or check your news feed, especially if you follow a lot of Christian news, without seeing many men and women who were once regarded as great ambassadors for the faith and watching how they have fallen. Anyone who thinks he, should st- he can stand, be careful lest he fall. But I want you to notice this or know this. We do need to be careful when it comes to engaging with those outside of the church because there are many idols out in the world. But what I would contend is that not only do we have to be careful when we engage with those outside of the church, we have to be careful when we engage with those inside of the church. Because typically we think of idols as originating from outside the church and then making their way in. But I want you to hear me. There is also a great danger, danger of idols coming from inside the church. See, let me break it down for you. Idols, idols will come from the world when those in the world refuse to acknowledge who Jesus is. That's how idols are formed in the outside world. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus. They refuse to acknowledge that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he would do. They refuse to acknowledge that his teaching is good and true, and therefore idols are formed. But idols come from within the church. When the church acknowledges Jesus, but then takes his teaching to a place it was never meant to go. John actually warns about this in his second letter, in 2 John verse 9. There's only one chapter, so you just say the verses. In 2 John verse 9, because listen to what he says there. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. And in the church, brothers and sisters, often Jesus' teaching is taken beyond what it is meant to be taken as. And as a result, idolatry has flourished. Let me give you a couple of examples so you know what I'm talking about. There are some who take Jesus' teaching about our, 
about our responsibility and our need to love our neighbors and they've taken it to a place that Jesus never meant for it to go. Because they say that what Jesus means is that we love everyone regardless of their life choices. We never call out sin. We agree with everything that anyone does because that's the most loving thing we can do. We never disagree with a lifestyle. That's idolatry. That's not Christian teaching. There are some who have taken Jesus' teaching about what it means to be a man or a woman and they have added into it their cultural preferences and they've created idolatry out of a thing that God meant for good. There are some who have taken Jesus' demand that we do justice and correct oppression to a place that he never intended for it to go. And you know how I feel about all of those issues. But I'm telling you, there is a, there is a danger in taking Jesus' teaching beyond what Jesus intended it to be used for. And what we have done is the same thing that the world does, create us idols and we worship that instead of our Savior. There is a danger in both ignoring Jesus and in paying attention to him, but taking his teaching further than he intended. Be careful, brothers and sisters, because around every corner, there seems to be dangers, toils, and snares. And around every corner, there seems to be a temptation to fall. But here's the hope. I don't want to beat you down with that. You might be thinking like, man, well, this is just bad news. Well, here's the good news. Through Christ, we can stand because he is fighting for us. You see, in the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right after he says, be careful if you think you can stand because you might fall, in the very next verse, he says this, a verse that so many of us know, that there is no temptation that has come upon you except that which is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear under it. Listen to me. I love how good our God is. Because you know that word there where it says that he will provide a way out? The word in the Greek literally could be translated as he will create out of nothing. Ain't that our God? He doesn't need to find an escape route for us in what the world already has because when there is no door and there is no window, he will make one. He will make a way so that you can stand up and endure when you are tempted to fall. And some of y'all, I'm telling your story because you know it's true. Because some of y'all have been sitting at that phone getting ready to make that stupid decision by getting on that website. And a brother or sister calls and asks how you're doing. And God has provided a way out for you. Will you take it? Some of y'all were on your way to the club to act a fool when somebody else called you and said they needed you. And God provided a way out. Will you take it? I'm telling your story. I bet if you look back, you would find time and time again, if you're honest, doesn't mean you took the way out, but when you can say, God created a way where there was no way. And it shouldn't shock us because when we were desperately in need of getting to God and couldn't find our way there, God made a way where there was no way. There was no hope for us. And so God stepped in and made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Ain't that our God? Yes, there are dangers, toils, and snares at every turn, but at every turn, God is saying, I am creating for you where there is no way, a way for you to stand up and be faithful. I am making a way for you to live the true Christian life. God is fighting for you. God is fighting for you. And what I want you to see is that as you fight to live the true Christian life, and hear me, it will be a fight. Know that at no point will you ever find yourself fighting alone. 
Because Jesus is is fighting to keep you from falling. Jesus is fighting to present you spotless without blemish or stain before God Almighty. Because of Jesus, we can live the true Christian life. You have the option to pursue holiness because Christ has freed you from the grip of sin. You have the opportunity to be distinct because God has already adopted you into his family. You can be grounded in Jesus because he has given you the spirit of God to dwell in you. And you can be careful and watch for dangers knowing that in every temptation, in every temptation, God is creating a way out. And in light of that, what John is saying at the very end of this letter is be faithful Live the true Christian life. And I want to tell you, it will be tough. You might be saying, man, why do I want to do all of this? Well, here it is. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because what we receive on the other side is so much better than any pleasure or comfort or lack of struggle we may have gained in this world. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this series and the beginning of this sermon, the church in 2021 is is not that different from the church in the first century. People have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is. People have all sorts of ideas about how you should live and what it means to be a Christian. If we're honest, every day the family of God sees people go out from us because they were not actually of us. And it hurts. And in the midst of all of that, what God wants is for his children to remain faithful and to live the true Christian life. And as we do, we can rest assured that though things don't go as we plan, though some walk away and some don't understand at the end of all of this, we will stand before our eternal father and hear well done, good and faithful servant. Live the true Christian life.